welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's number 150, which almost sounds like it should be special. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and a lot of the past week has been spent trying to deal with email issues, which have been a bit frustrating, although it's been a decent excuse for not getting back to people. And of course, the issue is still ongoing. I've also been having a few problems editing some videos, but at least I've been able to do a few interviews for the podcast, although it's been a bit hectic doing them back-to-back. But it's always great to meet new people, even if it's not face-to-face. In this part of the world, it's definitely feeling like summer has gone on vacation, and it really does feel like fall, as there are all kinds of new products with pumpkin in them. Just last week, I mentioned that there was a small Christmas section in one of the supermarkets. Well, there are now advent calendars on sale, and the Rudolph Christmas blind bag toys are back on sale as well. If we follow this logic, we should be able to stock up on Easter eggs by Halloween. It's been a bumper week for sports as well, the NFL starting up again, getting to the tail end of baseball season, lots of big soccer games, and the US Open tennis just finished. In a way, it would have been better if it had been rotten weather so I could have had an excuse to watch it all. And of course, food shows are off and running again, as I'm getting all kinds of invites to meet companies at Vita Foods and Anuga, which are both less than a month away. It will be interesting to see how the events go and what the overall feel is like, that's for sure. And also to find out whether the giveaways that used to be pens and reusable bags have now been replaced by hand sanitizer and branded face masks. Before we get to the news, I should let you know who we have on the show this week. It's a three-interview podcast this time with conversations with Elena Walden, policy manager at the Good Food Institute Europe, Dr. Emiliano Realverde, vice president of Bungie Lotus Croclan Nutrition, and Torben Vilskor, Ice Cream Academy Manager, and Niels Fohr Nielsen, Product and Concept Manager, Moulding and Wrapping, both from Tetra Pak. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. And that brings us neatly to this week's news. We had an exclusive interview with Ely about rankings and finances and innovation, Sinlay sold its premises in Auckland in New Zealand, then leased them back again, and the top 10 ice cream flavour searches online was revealed. And I'm not telling you what they are, so you'll have to go read it. The European Dairy Association Annual Convention 2021 is set to take place in Brussels. SIG invested 12 million euros in its new tech centre Europe. And Givaudin launched its new protein hub in Zurich. Perkin Elmer introduced its new Indiescope for dairy collection point milk tests. A new survey highlights the need for more focus on COVID recovery nutrition. And Olam Food Ingredients has set out plans for a New Zealand dairy processing plant. Swiss dairy company Emmy is planning for the future with changes at the top. DSM announced food system commitments. And you can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com. And first up this time is a conversation about ice cream and dairy alternative ice cream, which is really taking off at the moment with two guests from Tetra Pak. And they know a fair amount about ice cream, given around 50% of the world's ice cream is produced using Tetra Pak equipment and lines. 
So we had a chat about ice cream. So we had a chat with Torben Vilskorn, ice cream academy manager, who you will hear from first, and Niels von Nielsen, product and concept manager, molding and wrapping, from Tetra Pak. If you could tell me about the um, trends in ice cream-like inclusions, that would be great. Thank you, Tim. I think what, as ice cream producers, we are making the equipment. So we are kind of seeing out in the future what is going to happen within ice cream. And I think one of the largest trends that we are seeing, one of the biggest interest from the ice cream producers, which is our customer, that is to make inclusions into products. We've seen that for many years, where we have the cups from Ben and Jerry's, where we have these big lumps of everything nice, you know, the dough and almonds and strawberries, etc. And this is the trend that is going to be a little bit more broader in our product range, because it has been a huge challenge to include these large components or inclusions into the stick products. Imagine what would happen if you have a stick product and you have a large inclusion as a barrier of some kind inside of the product. Then first of all, when we are making the products, we are cutting the products in slices. And if there is a large inclusion placed just where we are cutting, then we will have a sliding of these large inclusions. And that gives a very terrible surface. And also it makes uneven products. Second of all, the stick that we are placing into these stick products, it is also when put in, it is also just put into the ice cream. And if it's hitting a berry or some kind of large inclusions, then we risk that it will not bend, but it will go in wrong or go in in a wrong direction. And that gives us a challenge because at the end of uh, our production line, we need to pick up the products. And here we have a small servo arm going down and picking up each of the product on the stick. And if the stick is malplaced or displaced from its uh, original place, then it's difficult for us to pick up the product. And then the products are going into waste. So what we have developed as a consequence of the market pull is that we've developed a wheel where we are more or less molding products or making small molds where we are placing, first of all, the sticks. And then we are putting in the ice cream matrix with the inclusions. And then we are molding the sticks out of it. It's a new technology. It's very nice to watch this rotating wheel that is pushing out these uh, molds very easily and put them onto the production board for further hardening and dipping in chocolate. And this is some of the products that we are really going to see in the future. These products where we are not just eating like mashed everything or a blended something that you don't know what it is. I think what customers are searching for in the future, it is much more to see what you eat. So being a little bit more in contact with the fruit or the chocolate that is in the product, you want to see it and you want to taste it and also to get this texture or different textures, biting and also these sensory adventures that these larger inclusions are giving. So in the future, I think actually, Jim, we're going to see a lot of these products. If I may add here, it's actually taking what you can see on a premium portion served cup from one of the high-end uh, suppliers where you really get big inclusions, big ingredients in the spoon when you eat from the cup. It is taking that into a stick product and that has been addressed in different ways in the industry, but this is the first time it's been solved with success. 
So I wonder if you could run through how you collaborate with your customers to deliver ice cream that have benefits, whether that's things like high protein probiotics and what kind of benefits you can also include. Of course, we can do this. Actually, we are in a position where we are quite lucky and also maybe also a little bit proud because we have a product development center. It is a semi-commercial ice cream factory that is placed in Denmark. And this is the place where we invite our customers. Then we collaborate and then we can make these, either these complex products with the high protein content where we are, you know, having a mixed facility that can handle this, or if it is probiotics or prebiotics or some other fortified products, uh, then of course we can collaborate on the claims, etc. So in short, we have the knowledge and processing here and we provide this to, uh, to the customer. Ice cream, obviously people associate ice cream with indulgence and the fact that it's sweet and wonderful. I wonder, is there a conflict between the better for you trends like probiotics and high protein and the indulgence of ice cream? If you ask me, then no, definitely not. I think when you look at um, better for you and indulgence, I, I think actually we are getting into a situation where they're kind of overlapping in a certain extent. If it is better for you, then it is indulgent. And indulgent for you is also better for you. I think one of the trends that we are going to, or has seen for the last few years, but also are going to see quite more in the future, that is a perfect example of this better for you and indulgence put into one product category. And that is the minis. You know, these bite-sized products that you can buy, it can either be small chocolate enrobed ice cream cubes, but it can also be small cones and such sort. And here this portion restriction or this bite-sized restriction is actually better for you. But as it is a quality product when you consume it, because it is, when you have one of those, you get all the flavor in one mouthful. So it is the indulgence and this better for you trend that is going hand in hand for this type of product. If you're asking ice cream producers around the world, if going and producing these mini products is an easy task, then by sure that uh, most of them will answer that this is, it's not a nightmare, so to say, Jim, but it is a challenging product to make because here, imagine what we have is a huge production line and inside this production line, we normally are having large products, but when we are reducing the size of the products, then we are also sharpening all of the, of the precision and the strokes of everything should be very precise in order for us to handle these mini products. So ice cream producers, I'm pretty sure they are looking forward to making a lot of minis, but they are also saying, okay, well, this is a risk because of the performance of the line can go down. And of course, plant-based is now part of the mainstream and part of the ice cream equation. There are so many different launches within plant-based. How do you help companies launch unique products that stand out, whether it's plant-based or in mainstream dairy ice cream? Actually, it is also going a little bit back to the first question with this better for you trends, because I believe that many of our ice cream customers they are actually going into these products with open eyes and open minds. And when we are talking to our customers, which are the ice cream producers around the world, then I think what they are challenged for is that, you know, they are limited in the amount of testing facilities and pilot facilities. And here, what we're doing is that we are supplying the customers with something we call innovation projects. It sounds a little um, scientific or very high level, but it is actually just 
taking in the customers and lifting their knowledge on some of the equipments that they probably don't realize that is available on the market and some of the new technologies that are coming to the market. And here what we are doing is that we are both helping them to get the knowledge and then we assist them to getting up new ideas. And then as it is, we are very focused on being there with the customer. We are also having a lot of experts that can help with or assist with making the formulation of these products that is uh, coming up as ideas and also designing the workflow and the process. And by the end of the day or by the end of the week, we can also go into our product development center and make prototypes of these products. So basically what we're doing is that if an ice cream producer is having the urge to go into these plant-based uh, products here, as I guess they will in the future, because it is, as you're saying, mainstream, then we are, as a company, supplying some of the innovation hardware and software behind the products. Dairy ice cream has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, whereas plant-based is a little more recent. And with dairy, it's always been the same thing. It's just milk, but with plant-based, you have oat, soy, almond, coconut, all different kinds. What kind of challenges are there when it comes to working with those different bases and along the same lines, how do you make it so that if it's a coconut base, that it tastes of the ice cream flavor as opposed to coconut? Yeah, you're totally right. It is complex to make these plant-based products. And I can just start with my own observation. I think many years ago, I was challenged with making not ice cream, but frozen dessert with soy. And here, a collaboration with one of the biggest producers of soy isolate and concentrates were as a partner in the project here. And I remember the project being very complex because none of the predictions that were going for a plant isolate or plant concentrate that was going in for, for instance, a drink or something like that were the same in ice cream because ice cream just behaved very differently. So there are so many challenges ongoing for the plant proteins. However, as you mentioned, we are right now standing here on the border between the traditional ice cream production and probably a new type of ice cream or frozen dessert production. Before we had the dairy protein and basically they consisted of the casein micelles and the whey proteins. Of course, there are some lot of subcategories out there, but on these two, uh, but these were the main two proteins that we had to work with for ice cream production. Now we are standing here with the huge amount of plant proteins that are treated in so many different ways. And I think actually what we are seeing here is that we are having many opportunities to make new varieties of ice cream, both sensory-wise, texture-wise, but also performance-wise and probably also in a whole new category or generic category for delivery. So when we are going in for the plant protein, I really see that we are opening not just one door, but many doors. I also know that when we are starting to talk about plant proteins, then I see a lot of challenges that we have in our processing and preparation for at least when making ice creams, because the plant proteins, as I said, they have many different functionalities. And also these are interfering with the ice cream, both mixed preparation process, where we are pasteurizing and homogenizing the mix, but also in the process where we are freezing and forming the products. And here in viscosity, for instance, is to mention where we can see extreme viscosities coming from these proteins. 
but also solubility and what we are putting abrasiveness or this wear and tear that it has on the mechanical parts in our equipment. Of course, these are challenges that, to, that we make it to take into consideration when talking about the equipment side, but certainly also when we're going into the taste and texture. And that's why I started to mention the soy, because here one of the biggest challenges was actually the off flavor. And I, th I think also when we are looking now to the plant-based proteins that we are seeing in the market, we are seeing a lot of different proteins. And I would say 90 of those are not having these off flavors that soy can have or had that at that time. And this is something that I think is getting more and more normal for the plant-based products that we are seeing on the market is they are not just looking the same as the traditional, but they are also having the same sensory profile as the generic or the baseline dairy products. Of course, there are new plant-based bases in terms of the, the plant-based milk alternatives coming onto the market all of the time. In the last little while, we've had them created from algae and barley. And even in the last few months, potato has been a new kind of milk alternative. When these hit the market, is that exciting for you guys? Do you test all of these and, and are some completely useless when it comes to ice cream? Definitely not useless for ice cream. Actually, I think... Potato protein, I worked with that some years ago, also for a frozen dessert application. And I think potato protein was one of the really, for me, challenging places for making a frozen dessert, because whatever I did with the potato protein, it didn't work for me. It didn't work at all. And then um, after a while of testing and trialing, I realized that this is one of the proteins that needs some activation. So here, what was required was to adjust the pH and then returning the pH again or the acidity. And then the protein worked and actually the frozen dessert coming from that one was really interesting. So again, we are seeing this evolving of these different proteins that we have on the market. And I think what we are just right now is that we are probably having a huge range of proteins that are available. But I also believe that in a two to three years, it will boil a little bit down to some mainstream proteins that is easy to work with easy to handle, also price-wise is acceptable, and also seen from the customer point of view, also acceptable. So what I kind of foresee and uh, was also a little bit touching here is that I don't know if we can call it generation 2.0 within ice cream frozen dessert, but definitely what we're seeing here is that we have a huge amount of opportunity as we're just scraping on the surface here. I don't know if I can mention this, but for instance, here in Aarhus, in our product development center, what we have just uh, opened up is that we have actually combined the product development center for ice cream and filtration. If you take that into consideration and saying, okay, well, making ice cream normally are a high solid product, or at least on the mixed side, then by adding in the, the knowledge of filtration and also the filtration technology and equipment, the exit what I see is that we are starting to combining a lot of different interesting technologies that might go hand in hand and also see the future of, of ice cream as being a little bit more non-conservative and opening up for plenty of new textures. That must be really useful for your customers to know that they can come to you and that you have all of that expertise and knowledge to be able to overcome some of the challenges. It definitely is, yeah. And I think also what we are, as a company, of course, interested in acquiring and building knowledge. 
but we are certainly also interested in having the market increasing. So by introducing new technologies, we know that our customers, which is the ice cream producers, if they are growing, then of course we are growing as well. So that is only a, a benefit for us to see the market expand and proliferate on the developments that we are making. And I know that Tetra Pak has always been at the forefront when it comes to sustainability questions and how does the sustainability aspect of things affect the launches, whether it be packaging or the product itself? We see this a lot in packaging materials at the moment. In ice cream solutions, we are not producing the packaging material. We are a full system supplier on the equipment, including the wrapping machines. Ice cream, high capacity lines, we produce our own flow wrap, uh, multi-lane wrapping machines. So we have to facilitate any packing material that our customers request. And at the moment, we can see it has a sustainability trend growing, and that fits very well with our Tetra Pak sustainability strategy. So it's something we have a lot of emphasis on at the moment. And as far as alternative packaging, I mean, for for example, we've seen ice cream launched in flexible packaging recently. Are you constantly working on different ways to present ice cream and other products? What we see a lot at the moment that could be excluded stick products or molded stick products, we see a trend moving away from the uh, traditional plastic foil that has been around for quite a while and as the trend was to make it thinner and thinner to save money. Now it is moving towards paper. Actually, before the plastic fall, it was also paper years ago. You can say we're going back to paper, but in a little different way. And it is quite a thick version of the paper. And this gives us some new tasks, some new things to solve in the way we handle this. Actually, I don't think it's the last we've seen. I think it will be a solution for a while, and then there will come other solutions to take over from that in flow-wrapped solutions. And and I guess it must make a difference when it comes to when you are working with different potential packaging. You have to ensure that it doesn't either interact with the ice cream or cause it to melt quicker or any of the properties of the ice cream itself. In ice cream... There's a cold chain. It's cold all the way through from production until you take it out of the fridge. So compared to some other packaging areas, it makes it a little bit easier on the packaging. So one of the main things we see here right now is about appearance. To get a thick paper wrap through the machine in a, in a robust process without uh, any risk of injuring the package, the wrap itself, but also having a good appearance without any folds or or marks in it. And it's a less flexible material than the one we've came from. So I think this is one of the key areas that has attention right now. But it is not one thing, it is a number of things. It's also thick paper, it's actually also, uh, there's a lot more handling in the factory, Uh, less meters of wrapping material on each roll you put into a machine some practical things to look into and solve together with our customers. Are you working on things like longer shelf life for products and longer melt times once they're out of the freezer? As Nils was mentioning, the ice cream industry, we have the cooling chain. So all the distribution is done at sub-zero in a sub-zero environment. 
the producers are interested in having longer shelf life. But today, as we are having a frozen uh, environment, then we actually have a pretty, pretty nice shelf life. But on the other hand, the melt times or how fast the ice cream is melting, well, that is one of the places where ice cream producers are probably going to or has been focusing for many years because if ice cream is melting fast, then it means that it goes from a crystalline form or the water goes from crystalline form to a liquid form. And when it goes back again, the water freezes into larger ice crystals. And the stronger you make the ice cream microstructure, the frozen dessert microstructure, will certainly affect the durability towards temperature shock because if the melting is prolonged or if the melting is slowered or slowed down, then the products will sustain the quality deterioration that is coming from distribution where temperature can go up and down or from your freezer or from the handling at home. So again, longer melt time is definitely interesting. And traditionally, when you have ice cream standing on the table, it is around half of it is air. And this air is actually floating around, even though that we are talking minus 18 degrees Celsius, then the air bubbles are floating in a suspension. And here, traditionally, it is supported with a thin layer of fat, which is covering these air bubbles and entrapped the air inside the ice cream matrix. And again, if we are looking at the future and if plant-based alternatives, then we are probably also going to develop or not develop, but at least search for stronger structures. And here the fat proteins, well, some of them is actually capable of not replacing, but at least also to benefit these air cell structures because they actually can go in also and generate these foam structures. So with the longer melt times, what will probably be seen is this is going to be improved with the launch of plant proteins because they are, as I said earlier, they are really opening up for some technical and technological doors for the structure and for the ice cream uh, microstructure build. So yeah, I think if you ask me a couple of years ago, I would say we are working very much on improving but now I can say that we are not just working on improving the existing matrix, but we are actually innovating in a fairly new matrix. So we are seeing very interesting times in the short term here. Next, it's two infant formula ingredients with Dr. Emiliano Realvere, Vice President of Bungie Lotus Crow Clan Nutrition, who can tell us about the new Betapol Organic, the first Chinese and EU certified organic OPO for infant milk formula. You have a new product out. I wonder if you could give me some background on what the new organic product is. The product is our traditional Betapol product, the first OPO or SN2 Pamite product in the market uh, has been in the market for uh, many years since the mid 90s. And now the interesting thing is that we were able to make this product on an organic certified version with dual certification, both EU bio and Chinese organic standard. A traditional product making it organic, it doesn't seem like such a big deal, but given the scarcity of raw materials and the type of raw materials we use and the enzymatic intertrification process we use, this has been a challenge for many, many years for our competitors and for us. So we are very proud to be the first to launch an organic SN2 Palmite product to the market. So how long was it in development? Because as you said, it's not just a case of putting the word organic on there. There's a lot involved. Indeed. 
the idea has been there for many years in our company for over 10 years. The project was started and stopped multiple times, mostly because of the inability of organizing a supply chain to be able to serve the manufacturing assets with organic certified raw materials that would make this product certifiable. So what we did is, in this instance, we created a Bangalore's Cochrane Nutrition in September 2019. And this was, I created the business unit. This was on my radar. So we restarted the project in July 2020. And uh, we made the product now end of August, beginning of September. So it was a very short time thinking to launch, but it's something that was in my mind and it has been in our minds for a while. We accelerated the work quite a bit, but it wasn't a new idea for us. And what about the testing behind it? How much testing has there been and how many studies have you done on the new product? If you refer to clinical studies, the product is identical to our Betapol product. So there's no molecular difference, if you will. So all the benefits are the same. The only difference is that we switch the raw materials. We maintain the, the process for manufacturing is the same. The product specifications are the same. So the benefits of OPR, of centupalmitate, are the same as, as always. And just one little add-on to that is the benefits of SN2 palmitate have been proven with many different variations and sources and, and types of SN2 palmitate products, not only with our product, starting with landmark papers from Virgilio Carnelli in 1995, 1996. So this is a, an ingredient that, unlike a lot of ingredients in infant formula, has such a wealth of evidence. And now, now we know that SN2 palmitate brings these benefits to babies. And as you mentioned before, it was already an existing product that you've now turned into an additional organic product. What was the reasoning for having the organic addition? What we have seen is a tremendous growth in the organic subsector within the infant nutrition market. And not only infant nutrition, but also on baby food. If you look at baby food, the organic portion of the market has grown much, much faster than the conventional from a lower base, but a stronger growth. What is going on is parents are becoming more tuned to analyze and scrutinize the quality of the ingredients that go into the products they feed, not only themselves, but also their children and their babies. And therefore, the organic certification provides an additional level of trust for parents. So parents have been switching from conventional to organic products at, a, at an interesting rate. In China, which is one of our main markets, for example, the organic infant formula market has been growing at over 30% over the past five years. That is astonishing given that the in volume, given that the actual market is in stable or moderate decline given the decreasing number of births. So parents are demanding these products and the parents that demand this product find themselves with a problem, which is there are not that many clinically proven ingredients on organic versions. So for us, you know, grabbing the most clinically scrutinized and tested and proven ingredient and make an organic version of it, we always thought it was an ideal value for parents and for the babies drinking this. The raw material challenge kept us <laughs> from doing that and we finally made it. And so what are the benefits of the product for infants? 
if you look at breast milk or mother's milk, a large portion of the triglycerides in mother's milk have uh, palmitic acid sterified in the middle of the triglyceride. That is what is called SM2 palmitate. The triglyceride has three positions, one, two, three, palmitic is in the middle, so SM2 palmitate. That particular feature of the fat in mother's milk is what makes the fat in mother's milk so great to nourish a baby. If you look at the infant formula blends without SM2 palmitate or without OPO, the vegetable oil sources that are used do not have palmitic esterified there in the middle. They tend to have it in positions one and three. So by changing that molecular structure without changing the fatty acid profile, what you end up having is reduced constipation, improved energy intake because the baby's gut is able to absorb palmitic acid more efficiently. The fact that you absorb fat more efficiently means that you form less calcium soaps of palmitic acid, and that reduces constipation. These calcium soaps are insoluble and harden the stool, making the baby's uh, digestion harder and increasing constipation. At the same time, this improved health of the baby's gut will result in a healthier microbiota or gut bacteria environment, less crying, better sleep. And recently in an independent study that was done with our product, but we were not related to it, it has been shown that babies fed with an SN2 palmitate formula containing betapol, in fact, show improved fine motor skills. So a lot of benefits for the baby just tied to that simple molecular change in the structure of the fat and that are driven by a better overall gut health. And how will this new product help formula manufacturers? Last week, we launched the product. An infant formula manufacturer was unable to produce a formula with all these clinical benefits. So although there are a few formulas with some clinically proven ingredients, MFGMs and HMOs, very, very few, there is no formula with SN2 palmitate and an organic version. So now if an organic infant formula manufacturer wants to provide strong clinical benefits to their consumers and to the parents that buy this formula, they have the chance to do so by adding organic betapol. For labeling, are they going to be able to like, put claims on the packaging? The benefits of betapol and what can you do in the different jurisdictions where betapol is useful with also our competing products, SN2 Palmitate, uh, there are all the competing products in the market. That hasn't changed. From a labeling perspective, the only thing that changes is that now you can put an organic label to a formula containing OPO because Betapol Organic is available. In terms of health benefits or claims, the manufacturers cannot do anything different. And right at the beginning, you mentioned how it's not just a case of it's not easy to make a regular product into organic. How difficult is it to create products like this that are organic? We had to go back to the plantations where the oil crops are produced and establish partnerships with a few plantations that are being converted into organic or that were converted recently into organic. And not only that, that were converted in a way that can achieve both China organic standard and EU bio certification because we wanted to make our product doubly certified. We wanted to focus on a complete product that can be used by our customers, by most of our customers, whatever they are. So you have to go back to the plantation. And going back to the plantation takes time and takes developing partnerships. That was the key 
for us. The advantage of being Bungie, other players in the market that are in this business, the advantage of us being Bungie is that Bungie has relationships with farmers and with the agriculture industry dated back to 200 years. So for us, perhaps it was a bit easier to establish an organic supply chain, given the strong relationships we have with the agriculture uh, establishment, the community. And how does this fit in with the other products that you have in your range? Yeah, we have a range within the beta. Betapol is not a product, it's a product line. Right? So we have Betapol, which is our flagship ingredient. It has approximately 55% level of SN2 palmitate in it. We have a Betapol Plus product that has 65% or more, 65 to 75. And we have a Betapol Select product that, in addition to focusing in OPO, oleic, palmitic oleic, it starts incorporating additional triglycerides that are highly prevalent in mother's milk. For example, oleic, palmitic, linoleic, or OPL. So Betapol Select has a combination of OPO and OPL. So this is our Betapol product line. Last week, we launched organic Betapol, our traditional product with 55% SN2 palmitate. We, in theory, technically can make any Betapol product organic. Now, what we need to do is work with customers to make sure they have a long-term commitment because we need to go back to the plantations, as I said, and, and establish all this supply chain. So Betapol Organic fits within our Betapol product line, and depending on how customers react to it and the demand, we will be able to provide organic versions of any other products in our Betapol product line. And uh, what markets was it specifically introduced for? It is EU and China, so manufacturers that produce within or produce for export into the EU and China. Why? Because those are the certifications we have. And we obtain those certifications because our customers' main lines of business are targeted to those geographies. If we have a customer that wants to do it for you know, Australia and New Zealand or for the U.S., once you obtain two certifications and you do it double and you don't fail and you go through the process, I think it's very easy to add another one. Again, it takes a lot of work making sure the supply chain is there and all the certifications are in order. But for now, EU and China and customer requests will determine what other certifications we obtain. Is it already being used in finished products that are on the shelves? <laughs> the answer is no. But you will see within the next two weeks, some big news of the first infant formula with organic OPO worldwide being launched by our customer that the customer that partnered with us to go through this development oh well, that's good at least it's coming anyway yeah and to be honest jim one of the things that i changed since we started dlc nutrition bangalore score lotus crocan was in the nutrition business for many many years but we started the nutrition business unit to change a bit the approach to nutrition customers infant uh, medical and sports and supplements. And one of the things that I change is now all our innovations have a customer partner with it. We create together with our customers, we develop together with our customers, and therefore we advance together in this journey. There are no innovations now in uh, our business unit that do not have a customer partner with it. 
This month, a new report was published by the Social Market Foundation which called on the UK government to invest in alternative proteins to meat and dairy to meet its climate targets. It's certainly a little controversial, but nonetheless thought-provoking, and one of the organisations that passed comment on it was the Good Food Institute, which is an international NGO helping build a more sustainable, secure and just food system that works with scientists, businesses and policymakers to advance plant-based and cultivated meat, eggs, dairy and seafood to make them affordable and accessible across Europe. To go over the report and some of the potential options is Elena Walden, Policy Manager at the Good Food Institute Europe. All right, so I guess the first question is if you could um, give me a bit of background as to what the new SMF report covers. Yeah, sure. So the new Social Market Foundation report, I think, really clearly sets out the multiple reasons that the UK government has to invest in and commit to developing the sustainable protein space. So by sustainable proteins, which are sometimes called alternative proteins, as in, as in the report, we mean really meat, eggs, dairy and seafood, but that are produced without the need for animals at all. And there's three ways really of doing this. So either you can produce those foods, so you can make meat, eggs, dairy and seafood, but using directly plant protein ingredients. You can use fermentation processes, or in the case of cultivated, you can basically grow or cultivate that food directly from animal cells. And the general idea and the general promise here is that you essentially give people everything they like about eating animal protein, but produced in ways that are a fraction of the external cost. So in the case of plant-based, you're basically recreating or biomimicking that experience of eating meat or dairy. And with cultivation or fermentation processes or some fermentation processes, you're actually producing genuine animal protein, but without the need for animals. So the report really sets out why kind of investing in the development of these foods is so important, kind of in the bigger picture of how governments are going to meet their environmental targets. And it draws a really good and strong parallel actually with renewable energy and the fact that, you know, we've seen massive investment in the renewable energy space out of a recognition that we need to invest and be able to provide people with sustainable options and make those options as easy and convenient for people to buy into. And we essentially need exactly the same approach in the food space. So we need to make options and invest and develop these sustainable proteins that allow people to keep enjoying the meat and dairy that they clearly want to eat now, but again, at a fraction of the external costs. And the report also sets out, as well as the kind of environmental imperative that is for the government to invest in this space, it also sets out very clearly the kind of huge growth and opportunity that there is for investment in this space. And, you know, we've seen this sector go from strength to strength. We've seen double digit growth in the last decade, pretty much every year in the plant based world. And really, that trend is going to continue. There's going to be a lot more where that comes from. And the governments and the companies that capitalize on that growth are really going to be the winners here. So, it's just a flavor, I think, of what the report shows. Now you go into any supermarket in Europe, pretty much, and there's a section of plant-based foods. You mentioned the fact that it's growing. Do you think that there's an issue with the fact that it is growing so quickly? There's not enough space on the shelves and there are potentially too many products being developed? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, it's really only in the last kind of five seven years really that I think companies and businesses are really starting to think about making plant-based options actually mimic or recreate the experience of eating meat and dairy. 
So, I mean, there is a lot of activity happening in this space, but I think from GFI's point of view, our take would be that we've not got to the position yet where there's real parity in terms of both the taste, but also the price, because clearly we're still paying a premium for plant-based goods now. So, although there's a lot of choice now, I think the real kind of the options that are really going to capture that kind of growing market that wants to have a more sustainable option but also doesn't want to sacrifice anything when it comes to taste and price i think that's still a kind of a segment still to capture and i think that's why there's a there's a huge growth opportunity here because we we only really have a handful of companies who are really getting close to kind of recreating the experience of meat and dairy with plant-based ingredients and as far as the alternative protein alternatives to dairy what are the main issues with meat and dairy in terms of climate Scientists are pretty unanimous that if we're going to meet our climate goals, we absolutely need to look at our food system. And within that, it's pretty widely accepted that meat and dairy account for the majority of our food emissions. So, in fact, a report from the University of Oxford came out just a few months ago that said very explicitly, I mean, even if we eliminated fossil fuels from one day to the next, we still wouldn't be on track to meet our Paris climate goals without looking at uh, our food system and without looking at meat and dairy production. And I mean, that's just simply because meat and dairy are by far the most kind of resource heavy way of producing food. So, I mean, I think meat and dairy globally accounts for something like 18% of our calories and 37% of our protein, but it's the vast, vast majority of all agricultural land that's being used. I think it's something like 83% and it accounts for 60% of all the greenhouse gas emissions of the food system. It's an inefficient way of basically making food and the use of land and resources we have. And as well as kind of the environmental aspects, there's also kind of planetary health aspects. So, you know, intensifying demand for animal protein is driving the emergence of new zoonotic diseases. The fact we're feeding majority of antibiotics to animals is obviously worsening the threat of antimicrobial resistance. And, you know, companies are definitely getting this and we're, we're increasingly seeing that actually the meat and dairy industries do recognise the need for change and are responding to the enormous consumer demand we're seeing for more sustainable options. Nestle have launched a kind of a plant-based milk called Wonder Milk that's made from peas. Just yesterday, we've seen Birdseye, the owner of Birdseye, has announced a partnership with a cultivated seafood company called Blue Nalu. We've got the biggest German dairy giant, Bauer, investing in a plant-based range. So, I mean, companies are increasingly kind of waking up and moving in this direction. And I think that's definitely the way we need to go. And it's what we'll see more and more in the next few years. One of the things that a lot of companies in the dairy space and also the farm level seem to be investing a lot in is products that reduce emissions. So by feeding it to cows, it reduces emissions by 20, 30 percent. Is that something that will actually make a difference? Absolutely. Those kind of developments and those kind of measures that companies and governments are taking and researchers are, is obviously positive. And I mean, you know, given the climate emergency we're faced with, that we should be have a whole hands on deck in terms of kind of working out how to reduce the emissions. I mean, emissions is just one part of the story when it comes to meat and dairy. You still have just the inherent inefficiency that's built into that in terms of you're growing a massive amount of crops to feed to animals to get kind of the animal protein from that when you could be using those crops directly. You also still have all the planetary health questions about kind of antimicrobial resistance or zoonotic diseases and and just the general kind of global development perspective. So, I mean, it's positive but it doesn't solve all the questions. Whereas with sustainable proteins, with plant-based fermentation or cultivated meat and dairy, you have a fraction of the external cost, a fraction of the land use, and uh, none of the kind of planetary health risks that are associated. How much better environmentally are alternatives in terms of emissions? 
So on the dairy side, I think the rough kind of figures is that non-dairy milk, so plant-based milk, is roughly three times better in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions. When it comes to plant-based meats, it would reduce the emissions up to 30 to 90 percent of plant-based meat, depending on the source of the protein. GFI recently commissioned a study that was led by CE Delft that looked at the potential of cultivated meat as well. And that also came up with really promising figures of reducing emissions up to kind of 95 percent. So again, it's a fraction of the conventional system. And that's not only from the kind of methane and, and things from cows that is obviously talked about most, but I mean, there's a whole efficiency saving all through the system of the supply chains and the factories and the processing plants as well. And earlier on, you did mention how traditional products are still cheaper. How does that get addressed to bring that more even? Yeah, so it's a very good point. And I think there's actually multiple strands of this question. So I mean, one of the main reasons I think why plant-based products still have this premium attached to it is that there simply isn't the kind of ecosystem in place yet that allows this scaling up to to the scale which would make it really price competitive and bring those prices down so I mean like anything when you're operating still at a relatively small scale and as I said I mean plant-based meat has and plant-based foods in general has grown massively in the last decade but we're still talking sort of plant-based areas about 2.5 percent of the market share in Europe plant-based meats less about one percent so we're still operating at, in proportion with everything else it's a relatively small scale and like with anything operating at a small scale the costs and the overheads are higher we just simply don't have the supply lines there or the supply chains and yet to to really optimize that for plant-based so Generally, investing in it, in building in this entire ecosystem would be a massive help in optimizing and bringing those costs down. Another factor I think that's important to stress is that governments definitely have a role here to play in facilitating some of this open access research that currently a lot of companies are doing in-house, which is obviously contributing to the kind of price points and their need to recoup those R&D spend costs. So having open access R&D, which is kind of accessible to everyone, would also help in bringing the cost down. And another factor is just simply that, at least in the plant-based meat world, the products, as I said, there's only a handful that really recreate or satisfactorily sort of biomimic the experience of eating meat. But I mean, they're still operating at a premium because quite frankly, they can. I mean, during the COVID pandemic, the demand for plant-based options surged and basically these companies couldn't keep up with demand. So as with any kind of market, if they can operate at premium, they will. Although they have, it should be said, kind of dropped their prices several times over the last years, they are coming down. But so in general, I mean, just having a more dynamic and competitive ecosystem and, a, and more competition in this space will also help where we'll see the emergence of new products at different price points to cater for different needs. We've heard about the potential for taxing meat and even dairy, which clearly would be quite unpopular. What's the best way, do you think, to proceed? The talk of the tax on meat in the UK, I think it took our Prime Minister about less than four hours to rebuke that. So, I mean, it, it rebuke that as an option. So I think, yeah, it's clearly a very sensitive and politically difficult option. And governments clearly sort of understandably don't want to be seen as sort of lecturing or dictating to people what they should and shouldn't be eating. If we're not going to go down that route of that policy measure, that also just reiterates the importance of investing in sustainable options and investing in sustainable alternatives like the sustainable protein space. By investing in these options, again, you're making it easier for people to choose a more sustainable option. And by investing and committing 
to developing this space in general, you're not going down the route of looking like you're maybe trying to dictate people's food choices. You're very much focused on the supply side rather than the demand side and making the supply side as competitive as possible so that it becomes just easier and more default for people to to swap meat and dairy occasionally. And what about potential changes at the farm level? Governments are already incentivizing farmers sort of in general to shift their production to more sustainable practices so particularly in the UK broadening their work to include things like tree planting but definitely governments can do more to support farmers to kind of seize the opportunity that sustainable proteins represent so shifting to growing higher value crops or even installing their own cultivators or or production facilities on that level so I think governments definitely have a role to play in facilitating and smoothing this transition which is needed and is already in some ways underway if we see the surging demand for plant-based foods. The industry gets it, I think, that this is the trend that's going and I think that that's underway and I think they're realising that the sooner they move on this trend, then the more they're going to profit and capitalise from it and I think that's what more and more of the industry should be doing. And so how does the Good Food Institute fit into all this discussion? So the Good Food Institute, we are an international non-profit organisation that works with companies, scientists and policymakers to advance the whole sector and importantly sort of maximise the societal benefits that will come from this transition towards more sustainable protein. So our role is somewhere between sort of an accelerator and a think tank in terms of bringing everyone around the table to identify what needs to happen to advance this space and make it as competitive as possible on those three metrics again of taste price and convenience and yeah identifying what needs to happen and then basically working with everybody to overcome those questions and those hurdles so yeah we are exclusively focused on basically accelerating and driving as much competitiveness and activity in the sustainable protein space what do you think is a realistic time scale for meeting some of these challenges The success and the development of sustainable proteins really getting to that price and taste parity I've talked about is really in a way dependent on governments. I mean, in the very much the same way that we've seen with renewable energy and even, you know, most recently the development of vaccines, when governments commit and invest to doing something and putting the open access research in place, that can massively accelerate progress in this field and bring the costs down so that sustainable options become accessible for all. There is a lot of activity happening in this space. A lot of it is being driven sort of by private investment. That puts us on one trajectory to get to this being a a really substantial part of the market. But with government support accelerating this, we can get there a lot, a lot faster. There's a range of estimates. But for example, Boston Consulting Group has predicted that with government investment, plant-based and cultivated proteins could make up about 22% of the global protein market by 2035. There's there's other reports that are are much more ambitious, so 50% by 2050. So it's really dependent on the extent to which governments buy in and commit to this space. Are you getting any sense of whether they are or not? So we're seeing some really good examples worldwide. And I think the message I would have is that UK and Europe sort of needs to catch up. So we've seen Singapore and Israel and governments like Qatar really get interested in this space. So Israel have launched a national alternative protein strategy to really kind of accelerate their development of the space. And in Singapore, they've invested in kind of a public research facility to accelerate the development of the space. So we are seeing some regions get interested in it. And there's some really positive examples. And for example, the EU has just announced first bit of funding into cultivated meat research. So there are some positive examples, but I think it needs to happen a lot faster. And I think UK and Europe particularly might risk getting left behind if they're not fast enough. 
once it does accelerate, then there are economic benefits to being in the driver's seat as opposed to being last one at the races, so to speak. Exactly. And I mean, that's something that the, the SMF report really makes clear is that there's a clear green growth opportunity and whether or not the UK or Europe takes that, I mean, there's there's an export opportunity here. And if we're not going to be in the driver's seat, as you said, then we're going to be exporting massively to, from the countries that do move first and take advantage and capitalise of this growth. Things like the Social Market Foundation report that just came out must be good in terms of the visibility that comes along with it. What what are the next steps along those lines following this report? It's really about governments starting to take this space seriously as a real climate solution, but also as a as a potential for green growth and really starting to commit serious amounts of money into investing in this and accelerating this and having a joined up strategy of how it's going to do this and capitalize on it, like like from the examples I mentioned before. So it's really time for the UK government, you know, with its very ambitious climate targets, you know, its COP presidency this year to really get serious about investing and committing to this space, as well as governments. I mean, more and more of kind of the the existing meat and dairy industry should also recognise kind of the trends that are coming and start to get interested and invest in this space. And that's how we're going to drive forward more and more activity, get more and more competitive and really kind of accelerate that path we're already on. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. Hi, Jim. Well, after a pretty aggressively higher GDT last week, the, the market has seesawed a little bit this week, I guess. Um, we, we certainly saw some follow-on price increases after the auction. Um, but then early this week, markets, uh, the futures markets at least, have turned slightly negative and a couple of reasons for that, I think. Well, one, I guess, the fact that we started to get up to milk equivalent prices now, which are are quite high. And, and certainly historically over the last number of years, the, the, some of the highest milk equivalent prices based on current um, forward prices for commodities that we've seen. So there's a concern that um, that could stimulate some milk supply additional milk supply next year. And that's starting to get some people a little bit more bearish on the markets. But uh, if you just look at the shorter term fundamentals, we, we started to get some statistics out this week for uh, major milk collections for July. So we've got the, the German milk collections and, and they come out at a negative 1.2% compared to last year. And while that looks low, uh, it's not as low as was expected. Um, so there, there's a, uh, you know, the forecasts were coming in somewhere around negative 2%. So, so the milk collections for July actually for Germany coming a bit, little bit better than expected. And France is also out, which is down uh, 1.9% for July compared to the previous year. And provisionally, we had forecast uh, about 1.7%, so a little bit worse than expected there. But overall, you know, we, we've certainly had uh, a weak milk collections during the summer in Europe and the, the hot weather was the, the main reason for that, but also some of the higher feed costs as well. Um, but there is some signs starting to appear now that we may uh, be turning from the worst of that, I guess, where we're starting to see some not necessarily positive numbers everywhere, but certainly uh, improvements in milk collections over the last number of weeks. So those things are weighing on the market a little bit uh, over here. But at the same time, there's still the bullish arguments are still, um, you know, out there and fairly valid. Uh, as we discussed, I think last week, there was a, been a little bit of a slowdown in buying from China. 
over the last uh, couple of weeks and months, which has so far been taken up by buying from the other major importers. And, and it seems to be continuing at the moment. And we're going to see probably tomorrow now the GDT uh, volumes for next week's auction, uh, which we'll be watching closely because they've been really one of the things stimulating price increases over the last um, couple of months uh, as Fonterra have been uh, removing volumes from the auction. So, uh, you know, all eyes are on that right now. Um, the GDT next week, depending on these volumes, will, will be a good indicator to what the global demand really looks like. It'll be interesting to see if China stays out of the market again or it continues to be, uh, let's say, less uh, aggressive in their buying. Um, and if so, I think that continues to feed a little bit into this bearish argument that we're seeing in the market at the moment. Thanks a lot, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next time. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another podcast. It's a 30-day month, but there are five Wednesdays, so a lot of podcasts this month, which is good. Tiring and a lot of work, but good. Next week, the plan is for another three interviews, but you just never know. I'm also planning to go up the biggest hill in the south of Scotland at the weekend, and that might not happen either. It's not exactly an Alp or one of the Himalayas, but it's still a challenge. And on a clear day, you can see three countries from the top, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England. And on a not clear day, you can't even see Scotland. Every year, I have been doing the 1,000 mile challenge or 1,600 kilometers in a year. And going up big hills always seems a bit like a waste because you spend a lot of time walking, only it's not a long distance. But I'm really close to the 1,000 already and it's only September, so maybe like the advent calendars by the end of September, I can start on next year's challenge. Then by January, I'll only have 700 to do. It can definitely be tough getting motivated when it's cold, dark and miserable out in those winter months. Alright, well it's time to go edit some video, listen to some new music and prepare for the weekend. It's a five-day weekend for the school here, even though it seems like they've only been back a few weeks already. And then two weeks later, they're off for another week. So instead of working and listening to Shostakovich, it'll be listening to YouTube and making peanut butter sandwiches. So on that note, I hope you'll join us next time, wherever in the world you may be, and that you have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and, as always, thanks for listening.